0: What do you know about Alexandre Dumas? He wrote the Three Musketeers. Oh, he also had a really interesting life. He is also a frog. (sighs) Rebeats. Anyway, as I was saying, Dumas is the guy who invented travel writing. He fought in revolutions. He built and lost a palace. I mean, he cooked an elephant. And his dad was kidnapped by pirates. Yar. He was one of the first international best-selling authors. And he toured all over the world. Did he tour the U.S.? Oh, no, because he was threatened with enslavement.
1: Oh, yeah, right.
0: He's black.
1: Soft-hearted Frenchie.
2: Alexandre Dumas is black.
0: Andrew, don't quote Django Unchained at me. But yeah, he did all of this while being black. In France. In the 1800s. I'm Anna. I'm Andrew. And this is The Two Musketeers. The podcast where we explore the fascinating life of Alexandre Dumas and the racism that surrounds him to this day. Coming soon on I Radio. Oh, Andrew!
2: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 32. All's Fairfax in Love and War. Welcome back to Pax Britannica, I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, we looked at the way the First English Civil War will be fought. In an episode I definitely should have called Castle Crashes, we saw how garrison warfare became the main way of taking and holding territory. Everything, from ancient Roman walls and grand medieval castles, to stone manor houses and village churches, could be used to project force into the surrounding area. We looked at why certain parts of England were more contested than others. Large population centres, with the craftsmen and manufacturing to raise and supply the armies. Productive agricultural areas to feed the soldiers. And the transport and communications routes of rivers and roads and ports. We finished off last time with a hint that the English Civil War wasn't going to stay solely an English affair for much longer. Just like the Irish Rebellion, now better named the Irish Confederate Wars, the other two Stuart Kingdoms are going to get involved in the conflict of the Third. The First English Civil War is about to fully become one of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. But that's for later in 1643. When we last left the narrative, we covered the death of the Earl of Northampton at the Battle of Hopton Heath on the 19th of March 1643, after which Prince Rupert of the Rhine took command of his army. At the end of March, the Earl of Newcastle led 10,000 men out of York to try and capture the city of Leeds, which Sir Thomas Fairfax had captured for Parliament in January. But after a few days, it became clear to Newcastle that the city wouldn't be taken quickly or easily, and so he changed strategy. On the 2nd of April, Newcastle captured the town of Wakefield, and from there worked to drive out the parliamentary garrisons in the nearby areas. This put the Fairfaxes in a difficult position, as it left them more or less surrounded in the west riding of Yorkshire. We'll return to them shortly. Down in the south, with the arrival of Spring, Essex took his field army out on campaign. At the head of 19,000 men, the commander-in-chief of Parliament's armies besieged the town of Reading, to the west of London and to the south-east of Oxford. After a ten-day siege, the town surrendered on the 26th. In the meantime, back up north, the Earl of Derby was defeated after an intense campaign against parliamentarians in Lancashire. After ambushing a much smaller force at Wally Abbey, Derby was nevertheless driven off, and the remaining royalist strongholds in the county, such as Preston, soon fell to Parliament. Derby himself fled the island of Great Britain entirely, retreating across the Irish Sea to his feudal holding, the Isle of Man. Now, back to Sir Thomas Fairfax. Sir Thomas was screening the retreat of his father, Lord Ferdinando Fairfax, who was falling back from Selby towards Leeds. To divert Newcastle's attention, Sir Thomas attacked and captured the town of Tadcaster without much of a fight. The Royalist garrison, massively outnumbered, fled. News of this got back to Newcastle, and he dispatched Lord Goring to go and deal with this annoying whippersnapper. Fairfax knew that Goring was on the way, but chose to stay in Tadcaster long enough to destroy whatever defences the Royalists had managed to raise before he left. But he waited too long. His men were still leaving the town from one end as Goring's men entered the other. Without waiting for his slower infantry, Goring took half his cavalry force, around 800 men, and charged after the parliamentarians. Fairfax then had to conduct a fighting retreat, with his own severely outnumbered cavalry, to allow his infantry to escape across the nearby river. He was successful at this, but once across the river, and on to Seacroft Moor, things took a turn for the worse. As Fairfax himself later recorded, quote Here our men, thinking themselves secure, were more careless in keeping order, and whilst their officers were getting them out of houses where they sought for drink, it being an extreme hot day, the enemy got another way as soon as we went into the moor, and when we had almost passed the plain, they, seeing us in some disorder, charged both flank and rear. End quote. Fairfax's army was spread out, uncoordinated, exhausted, and distracted. In all, Lord Goring's cavalry killed at least 200 men and captured another 800. Lord Ferdinando's main army made it to Leeds without trouble but it had cost a thousand men. Newcastle then went on to try and besiege the city of Leeds before giving up and capturing Wakefield instead. For the next two months, the Fairfaxes were in a very dangerous position. But then, the younger Fairfax proposed an offensive to take back the initiative and the town of Wakefield. Their scouts and spies indicated that Wakefield was only defended by a force of 800 to 900 men. It could be quickly and easily recovered, and force Newcastle to break off his campaign in the Midlands and return to Yorkshire. Agreeing with his son's plan, the elder Fairfax gave him command of about 1,500 men, and sent him off to take Wakefield. They marched overnight, encountering and defeating a small Royalist force en route, and arrived outside Wakefield by four in the morning. The Fairfaxes assumed that Wakefield was only held by, at most, 900 men, and you know what they say about assuming. As Fairfax's army approached Wakefield, and the garrison prepared to defend the town, he realised that his estimate was ever so slightly off. The defenders established a vanguard of at least 500 musketeers outside the town, which would have been more than half their number if parliamentary intelligence had been right it wasn't. In reality, Wakefield was garrisoned by more than 3,000 men, twice the number Fairfax commanded, and led by Lord Goring himself. But by the time Fairfax fully understood how outnumbered he was, it was too late, and he committed himself to the fight. Sir Thomas Fairfax led his outnumbered army from the front, and he won. Fairfax had not eked out a win. This wasn't a Pyrrhic victory. There's no splitting hairs about this, no debate about whether this was a tactical success, but a strategic defeat, or vice versa. Fairfax's army, after a fierce fight, swept into the town of Wakefield. The parliamentarians captured more than 1,400 men, with Fairfax himself capturing a number of officers personally. The bulk of the cavalry managed to escape, which was a shame, but hardly detracts from the achievement of capturing almost your entire army's worth of enemy soldiers while outnumbered. The cherry on top? One of those 1,400 prisoners was Lord George Goring. In his biography of Fairfax, Ian Gentle states that no victory against such heavy odds was won by any other general during the whole Civil War. When he heard about the battle... Lord Fairfax described it as more of a miracle than a victory, and in this world of providence and divine intervention, he did not mean this as a figure of speech. Clearly, God had been on his son's side. But even with God on his side, Fairfax had no intention of keeping hold of Wakefield, and packed up all the supplies and his prisoners as quickly as he could before marching back to Leeds. He was wise to do so. News of the capture of Wakefield and the effective destruction of its large garrison reached Newcastle, and he ordered his army around and headed back to Yorkshire. Lord Fairfax pleaded for reinforcements from nearby allies as well as to London, but not much came from it. The Fairfaxes might have wondered whether they were going to be victims of their own success. They'd been enough of a fawn in the Earl of Newcastle's side to stop him aiding the king, but now they'd reacquired the attention of a competent general at the head of a large army and no one was coming to help them.
1: Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the Golden Age of Piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week, over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag... Join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
2: It's around this time that the MP for Cambridge began to increasingly make a name for himself as one of the most proactive officers in the Eastern Association army. That name was Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell was dispatched to secure a series of villages and towns within the Eastern Association which had declared for the king. It appears that Cromwell used more of the carrot than the stick here leaders were treated leniently, with only a few being imprisoned. By early April, in response to a determined Royalist incursion from the North, Cromwell called for a muster of all Eastern Association forces in Cambridgeshire and the folks, that is, Norfolk and Suffolk. They mustered at Huntingdon, and this appears to have been a very large army indeed, but Cromwell only kept half of it in the end. The other half were sent to join up with the Earl of Essex at Reading, leaving Cromwell with around 6,000 men. He set up his headquarters at Peterborough on the 22nd of April, and for the next month Cromwell gained a series of lessons on warfare. On the 25th, he undertook his first siege. Nothing major, it was the small town of Crawford, and it was completed after three days. Aside from the personal angle, the enemy commander was his cousin, Captain Cromwell, it was an uncomplicated affair. Cromwell was then ordered to rendezvous with John Gell, who we last saw at Hopton Heath. The combined force would defend against the imminent royalist offensive. That was the plan anyway. The problem was that the Parliamentarian army took its time getting ready. time the royalists took advantage of a night raid on the thirteenth of May killed seventy parliamentarian troops and captured forty more. buoyed by this success the Royalist army continued the offensive, and met Cromwell in battle later that day. Cromwell was heavily outnumbered. He had about 12 Troop of Horse versus their 21, but this is where Cromwell learnt another lesson. After half an hour of each side's dragoons firing at one another without doing much damage, Cromwell gave the order to charge. He won. The Royalists fled the field, Leaving a hundred men dead and more than forty-five captured. As Lipscomb puts it, quote, Cromwell had learned his first lesson in combat: taking the fight to the enemy can pay disproportionate dividends. Cavalry battles are seldom won by any other means. End quote. Already, Cromwell was learning the tactics which would earn him renown as the first English Civil War goes on. Two episodes ago, we saw Queen Henrietta Maria return from the continent laden with arms and ammunition and nice words, but little else, from the other rulers of Europe. She'd been hosted by the Earl of Newcastle, and she'd spent the next three months in York continuing her diplomatic efforts. We've already heard how she had success in turning Hugh Cholmley, governor of Scarborough Castle, to the king's cause, but he was not the only one she spoke with. She also met some of her husband's subjects from the other two kingdoms. Perhaps most notably, the Earl of Montrose and the Marquis of Hamilton, and the Earl of Antrim. Montrose hasn't been in our story for a while now. During and after the incident, Montrose was locked up in Edinburgh Castle, prevented from meeting with his king while Charles was in Scotland. But when Henrietta Maria returned to England and met with Newcastle, Montrose was already there to speak with him. Montrose seems to have made a good impression on the Queen, and both Queen and Earl wanted a loyalist, royalist army to rise up in Scotland against the Covenanters. He told the Queen that there were many Scots who were eager to take up arms for their King and who opposed the Covenanter regime. All they needed was the King's warrant, quote, without which they would attempt nothing. With it, there was nothing they would not attempt, End quote. Montrose's appeal was interrupted by the arrival of the Marquess of Hamilton. Hamilton and Montrose did not get on, and their personal relationship was not helped by the fact they held opposite views on what the king should do. Hamilton urged peace and reconciliation. He said that any royalist uprising would just push the Covenanters into another war against the king, that rebellion in Scotland would mean the recall of the Covenanter army in Ulster, and that any uprising which did take place wouldn't be much use. None of the key castles were held by men the king could rely on, most of the lowlands was firmly under the control of the Covenanters. And the Highlands? The Marquess of Argyll was the most powerful Highland Lord and a leading Covenanter. The Marquess of Huntley was Argyll's only possible rival, and he couldn't be depended on. Instead, Hamilton reiterated that he would be pleased to act as the King's Commissioner in Scotland and to help keep the peace. Montrose thought Hamilton was a fool and a detriment to the royalist cause. Hamilton thought Montrose was rash, imprudent, and unseasonable. As Edward Cowan puts it in his biography of Montrose, so long as the king's cause depended upon the leadership of Hamilton, it would be deprived of the wholeheartedly active allegiance of Montrose. The king's trust and support for Hamilton was made clear to all when, In April 1643, the Marquess of Hamilton became the Duke of Hamilton. Montrose seethed. He penned a short poem telling the tale, real or imagined, of the now Duke of Hamilton killing a pet dog with his sword. Let's follow Montrose's story for a moment. Despite having his advice disregarded by the Queen and his rival so publicly supported by the King, the Marquess continued to plot an uprising of Scottish Royalists. But both Royalists and Covenanters were suspicious of Montrose's intentions. Other Royalist Scots, like the Viscount of Boyne and the Earl of Nithsdale, feared the Marquess was wavering in his resolve. The Covenanters correctly suspected that Montrose was actively planning to undermine them. On the 31st of May, the Royalist Earl of Antrim was captured by Major General Robert Munro, The Covenanter commander in Ulster. This was the second time Antrim had been captured by Monroe. On his person were a number of personal papers, letters, and documents which revealed a wide ranging Royalist conspiracy against the Covenanter government, formulated clearly after discussions with the Queen and several Scottish nobles at York. Interrogations of Antrim and two of his servants supported this evidence. The conspiracy? A ship? loaded with ammunition and supplies, was to sail from Ulster to the northern coast of Scotland. These supplies would be used to arm the Gordons and the Macdonalds, the clans of the Marquess of Huntley and the Earl of Antrim, respectively. A second ship would sail to Cumbria and supply the Earl of Nithsdale. Montrose and, according to one source, Hamilton were both implicated in the plot, but the conspiracy came to nothing. Clearly, something was planned. And spooked by the apparently wide membership of the plot, but aware that Montrose had been publicly spurned by the King, the Covenanters reached out to Montrose in June. The Marquis of Argyll, one of the de facto leaders of Scotland at the time, sent Montrose an offer a commission in the Covenanter Army, and the forgiveness of any quote unquote past demeanours. What's a little light sedition among friends, eh? It wasn't a bad idea it was even quite likely that Montrose would take the offer. He hated Hamilton, and the King seemed to back Hamilton to the hilt. He wasn't personally close to any of the other leading royalists. And he'd served the Covenant a Cause on the battlefield already, most notably at Aberdeen and the Battle of the Brigadier. As a quick aside, I attended a talk by one of my PhD colleagues, Kirsty Haslam, not too long ago. She was giving a very interesting paper on the artillery maintained by the Royal Borough of Aberdeen during this period, and I learnt that Aberdeen still held a decent number of cannon up until the Bishop's Wars. If you recall the Battle of the Brigadier, Montrose bombarded the Aberdonians with artillery, but they never fired back. At this talk I asked why they didn't. The answer? Because Montrose was bombarding them with their own artillery. He'd come through a few weeks before and requisitioned all their cannons, and he still had most of them when he returned north to help the Earl Marshal deal with a boyne. I thought that was a great little detail that I wanted to pass on. Anyway, Argyle sent the offer, and two Covenanter commissioners were dispatched to meet with Montrose and see what he thought. They came with an extra offer to sweeten the deal. The discharge of all of his debts, and the position of not just a commission, but as second-in-command to Alexander Leslie, Earl of Leven and Lord General of the Covenanter Army. It was quite a generous offer, but Montrose politely declined on the grounds of his conscience. A matter of conscience, you say? Well, that's a job for a minister. The Covenanters sent in the big guns. Alexander Henderson, one of the most respected and influential leaders of the Covenanter movement. Between him and Johnson of Warriston, They basically wrote the National Covenant. Montrose liked and respected Henderson, and Henderson told him that he had come on his own initiative. But Montrose had been told by one of the earlier commissioners that Henderson had been sent by the Committee of Estates. This was, as Cowan puts it, a loophole. Montrose had caught the minister in a lie. And so he listened politely to Henderson's case. And Henderson confirmed the Covenant a plan to send an army into England once again, to fight the King and aid the London Parliament. Once the minister had confessed, Montrose insisted that he would not accept the offer unless the truth behind Henderson's arrival was explained. To me, this does seem to be Montrose latching onto an excuse not to accept the offer, because apparently Henderson's explanation was not enough. Montrose sent a letter to the Covenanter commissioners, rejecting their offer. From here on, Montrose and the Covenanters were irreconcilable. At this point, Montrose sent a warning to the king, and I have to think that at least a small part of him was smug. Obviously, this was a terrible turn of events. A Scottish invasion would seriously jeopardise the king's cause, it put Montrose and his followers in very real danger but he'd been right, and Hamilton had been wrong, and that must have been something of a silver lining. We'll cover the ramifications of this next time. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, Bill, Duke of Bristol, David Braswell, Duke of Bracewell, Sue Bremner, Duchess of Wellington, Alan Goldstein, Marquess of Southampton, Brent Sitz, Marquess of Queensbury, Christopher Grogan, Earl of Oxford, and Angus Wilson, Earl of Dunbar. They are joined by John Viscount Bell. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free and a few days early. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. All of this supports me in one way or another. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.